as we come now before the very Word of God. If you'd like to read with me, would you turn in your Bible now for the final time to the book of Hosea? This will be our last uh, Sunday here together for the foreseeable future uh, in the book of Hosea. So I want us to focus here on this very, very last verse of the last chapter here. Uh, But in order to get there, I just, I can't quite let it go, so indulge me. I want to to read the whole of this chapter, and then we'll focus on the very end. Uh, Before we read it, would you please uh, pray with me? Lord, uh, we've heard from, from Jesus that whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Lord, we want that to be true of us. Help us to hear these words, to receive them, and to believe them, that they would become for us a strong foundation that can never be shaken. By your Spirit, would you guide us and press these things upon us? We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Hosea. Uh, I'll read here chapter 14, beginning, uh, we'll read the whole chapter and focus on the end. So Hosea chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Final verse. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of God. Now, we've taken this last chapter in three parts, either because I've just not been able to let the book go yet, or because it comes in three major sections. I hope it's more the latter than the former. The three major sections in this last book, this last chapter of Hosea that we've looked at are the section of return, revive, and reflect. 
Return is that first section where, where there's a call, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, that they're, they're to re- repent of their sin and come to God, directly to the Lord. After that section, then there's, there's a revive section where the Lord just calls them, come alive. Now they'll, they'll be flourishing and blossoming and shooting out of leaves and, and trees and all of that. Now today, we're in this third and final section, which is to, to reflect. So in these very last words of the book, the last verse of this whole book, it's as if the author, Hosea, pauses and turns and looks right at us. Whoever is wise, understand this. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, he says. He's speaking directly to the reader or the listener of the book now, and he wants us to ponder the whole of what has been said. That if you, are, if you are wise, you'll seek to understand, to know, to really go back and reflect upon these things in a way that shapes then how you live your life. That's what the wisdom of God really is. We know wisdom is not just knowing stuff. You know, even if you know doctrines, it's good. We love that. Even if you know Bible stories, it's good. Even if you know or memorize Bible verses, that's good. That's part of wisdom, but it's more than that. Wisdom is a skill based upon our knowledge. So if we were to look at this word wisdom as it's used in the whole of the Old Testament, wisdom is a a word used to describe the skill of various craftsmen. So there's big sections that talk about woodcutters and artisans and bakers, weavers, stonecutters, embroiderers, engravers. There's tons more that I, I can't name. These are all people that are skilled in their particular field. And they're described as as having wisdom in their work. Wisdom is a skill. So wisdom is not just about the what's of life. Wisdom is about the, the how of life. That's the reason why the book of Proverbs opens. One of the earliest verses is this, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, verse, no, yes, verse 5. The author says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and let the one who understands obtain guidance. Did you hear those parts? That someone who is wise will grow in learning and in guidance. That is the how of things. So now Hosea here is meant to guide us in that wisdom. And if we look in this verse at the very end, if we look very closely, you'll notice that he mentions that there's just one real path. The way of the Lord, the ways of the Lord are right. There's one path there, but there are two types of travelers upon that path. That he says the upright walks in the path, but the transgressor then stumbles in that path because they don't know how to walk rightly. So our goal then, what we want to be is, of course, we want to be like the upright ones. We want, we want to be able to walk in the paths of the, of the Lord. So we need wisdom to really reflect upon the whole book of Hosea, of Hosea. So we really want to think, what is the main message of Hosea? 
What is the Lord trying to tell us here, and how does this impact how we, how we live? So let's, let's listen here and let the Lord set us here on some solid ground. As we look at the whole scope of things, if I had to distill the word of the Lord to Hosea to one single word, if I had to boil down these past four months into the most distinct word or theme of the book, you might be able to guess by now if you've been here with us, that single word would be whoredom. Whoredom. It's not a fun word to say. It's kind of tricky in my mouth, but... uh, Hosea is not the only prophet uh, to address the people in terms of, of their whoredom. The same language comes from Isaiah and, and from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel. You know, if you've been embarrassed or blushing about some of the discussions about the whoredom, try reading Ezekiel. You bump into sections that are far more graphic than Hosea has been. At any rate, Hosea uniquely sets this theme right in the center of his message. In his words, in the words of the Lord, Israel has played the whore. I know that that's not the most fun or pleasant theme to reflect upon, and and we've already talked plenty about this, leaning into it periodically in these past months. But if we want to be wise, if we want to walk and not stumble as we close this final chapter in Hosea, we need to carry a reflection upon whoredom with us. Because even though it's, it's uncomfortable, it can be tempting because of that to want to leave that idea behind, to just talk about it and then, and then touch on it and, and never look back. But we need to resist that temptation. We have to in some way keep this with us. Uh, So for me, this happens in various ways, but as I'm preaching through various books, uh, I I find an item from that book that I think symbolizes or summarizes that book. So now that I've preached over several, uh, many books, now in my office there's a a curious little bundle of trinkets that I have sitting in my office that symbolize various things. So this book, these past months, there's been sitting on my desk a little item to, to symbolize all of what we've been talking about and summarize it. For Hosea, this item is, is a red, thigh-high, high-heeled boot. Not a full-size one, obviously. It's a little one. I assume it's from a, a doll. I brought it. If you could see it, that's what it looks like. And if you've been in my office and wondered why I have a little doll's boot sitting on my desk, there's the reason why, okay? Now, if you own or wear a pair of boots like this, okay, to be clear, I mean no offense to your judgment or style or other things. In fact, I would love to see a few of you in a pair of boots just like this. Boy, wouldn't that make my day. Uh, so I'm sure there's a good place for those, uh, those sorts of boots. Uh, but the reason why I chose this boot as a symbol for the book of Hosea is not just because it gives me a pretty woman vibe, but because it's a boot. And boots were made for walking. That's just what they do, right? So in, 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 in Hosea's situation, Israel's whoredom 
is not something she accidentally stumbled into. It is not something where where she fell on some hard times and ended up on the streets. Israel walked into this, went looking for this. She zipped up her thigh-high boots so that she could go chasing after other lovers than God. So this metaphor of whoredom in Hosea is not just about sin itself. It's about the pursuit of sin. So it's an uncomfortable truth that not just that we do sin, we often love to chase after sin. Now, Hosea here is not just writing an essay on red boots. This is not a a book report about whoredom. He's giving us guidance in the ways of the Lord. So it would be good for us in our reflection here upon us to ask, what's the purpose of this writing? Why did he do this? And we can see various elements embedded in the writing of Hosea. There's, There's an element of history here. We know that this actually happened. It was in the the 8th 8th century BC. There's real kings mentioned, you know, Uzziah and Jeroboam. They're on the cusp of the rise of Assyria, who's about to take them into exile within a generation. So these are not just hypothetical circumstances. These are real people, real events, real sins that happened. There's an element of history. There's also an element in Hosea of autobiography that Hosea has to tell about himself, about his, his own family, that God had told him to marry a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. So, so Hosea is not just part of Israel. He's, he's just deeply invested in what's happening here. But this whole book is not just a history book or an autobiography. It's, it's the main element here is a prophecy. Hosea is a prophet. And prophets in the Old Testament were not just fortune tellers of the future, some ones that can like kind of peek past the curtain and see what's coming ahead. Prophets are the, are the mouthpiece of God. They're just a few select people that God had handpicked to speak his particular word to the people. Now, the fact that this writing is prophecy does not tell us all of its purpose, because prophets do various things. They carry various messages from God. So there are sometimes prophecies of doom, sometimes prophecies of hope. Usually prophecies are a mixture of both doom and hope. So we still have to listen here, think, ponder, reflect upon what is the purpose in this prophecy from God. In the case of Hosea, I've been racking my brain trying to reflect upon this theme of whoredom, and and I think there are at least three major purposes in this writing. There are probably more, but I think three types of story that summarize this book. These are the last three we'll talk about before we close. The three themes that we really see are, this is a horror story, a tragedy story, and a love story. Horror, tragedy, and love. Let's take those three one at a time. The prophecy of Hosea here is a horror story. 
and I'm talking about whore dumb here, horror, as in Halloween style. Horror stories, by the way, are not just Draculas and Frankensteins and blood and guts and ghosts. You know, some, you know, modern literature does that. But horror stories properly are accounts that are meant to shock, frighten, or repulse. That's the purpose of a horror story. And Israel's whoring in relation to the Lord is meant to be seen here as shocking. We can see it over the course of the book, but there's a particular line that mentions that in particular. In chapter 6, verse 10, we hear, In the house of Israel, I, the Lord, I, the Lord, have seen a horrible thing. Israel's whoredom is there, and Israel is defiled. Sin is a truly horrible thing. That is, it is horrifying. Do you see sin this way? Do you see sin as horrifying? Bad, sure, but horrifying? Because as we live in a fallen, broken world, we are very used to encountering sin at every turn of every day. You know, every time we open our screens, every time we go shopping, in our homes, in our hearts, in our heads, we encounter sin everywhere. And, And over the course of time, the sheer frequency of it eventually makes sin begin to feel normal. That sin no longer makes us gasp, no longer gives us the sort of wide eyes that it might have otherwise. Over time, it gradually begins to lose the yuck factor, the ooh element of it. We need to be reminded that sin is really icky. More than icky, it's filthy and an abomination to God. When I say that about sin, I am not, by the way, just talking about a few of those really bad people who do the really bad things. You know, that's what some people do. You single out a few particular sins that, that we're going to count or consider as the worst ones. You know, those people who, who sleep around or who have gay relationships or who have abortions or, or are perverts. That's the real whorish stuff. Ooh. You know, I can look at that and go, oh, yuck. While I sit over here all smug and self-righteous which is also pretty disgustingly horrifying. You know, maybe you've engaged either lately or in your past with some particular sins that might be considered truly awful by some people. Maybe that's in you and in your past, maybe not. But either way, listen, your sin is still dreadfully wicked. 
This is a horror far more frightening than any silly Dracula story. You know, just, just to see how awful sin is. If you were the only sinner in the whole world, if you were the only sinner in the whole world, it would still take the death of the Holy Son of God to save just you from just your sin. That's how awful it is. Now, in saying this, I need to tell you true things, but don't hear me wrong. I don't intend here for us to get us stuck in a sort of cycle of self-hatred. I don't want that. The Bible does not want that. That's not the goal. It's not to hate ourselves here. It's just to give us goosebumps about these things again. You know, wisdom would teach us not to lose the shock of sin. And Hosea is in part a horror story. There's the first. The second, then, is it's also a tragedy This is different than horror. Tragedy stories are technically not just accounts where bad things happen. A a tragedy is a story in which the central figure of the story meets a downfall specifically because of his own fatal flaw. It's a downfall because of his own fatal flaw. So there may still be elements of horror and shock and, and fright and all of that, but in a tragedy, it's mainly about cause and effect. We can see this again throughout all of Hosea, but one of the most tragic verses, it's almost hard to hear it and to read it. It's at the very end of, of chapter 13, verse 16. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. It's a tough one to digest. These are the truly horrific, awful effects of sin, and we need to reckon with the reality that this is the judgment of God upon sin as well. And yet some people would look at the sweeping judgment sections of Hosea and be quick to accuse God of wrongdoing. You'll look at the judgment sections and go, that's harsh. You know, that's really cruel. That's, or worst of all, that was really evil of God to do that. A person who makes those sorts of accusations against God misses the fact that Hosea is an account of both horror and tragedy. That is, horror, Israel has done horrifically wicked things, but the tragedy is that the root of that downfall is really from within herself. That she can't blame God for where she is, blame her circumstances, blame anyone else to have to own it. So if we look closely at the text as we go through with wisdom, at at these judgments in the book, almost every time the Lord tells them the reason why the judgments come. He repeatedly, almost incessantly, reminds them of the reasons why they're facing these things. In verse 16, a Samaria shall bear her guilt because she's rebelled against her God. 
And the attitude or approach of Hosea is not to go, nah, 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 nah. You know, you got what's coming to you. It's not as if Hosea is sitting back and, and just can't wait until you have to suffer the consequences. That's not what a tragedy is for. A tragedy is a cautionary tale. One that we're meant to look at and learn from. You know, that Israel's situation could have been avoided if she returned to the Lord. You know, if she would just listen and follow the words of the Spirit, she would, she would walk, as we hear in the end, walk in the ways of the Lord that are right, be upright in walking in them. But if we miss that, we may face a similar fate as we hear here in this tragedy story. <sighs> Gut punches, right? The third one's easier for me to talk about. So if Hosea is a horror story and a tragedy story, the height of it, it's going to be hard for me to get through this, is it's really a love story. It's the main thing we should not miss from this book and all our months in it. If, if I had to pick a single verse that the whole book is kind of built around, it's the first verse of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, here it is. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go again and love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. You know, the sin of Israel in the book is still a horror. It's still a tragedy. She's still in this verse is wearing those bright red zip-up high-heeled boots as she marches around to other gods and other raisin cakes. And yet in the midst of her sin, she is loved by God. The best part of this is not just that she's loved by God, it's that it's a really lopsided love story a one-sided love story. It makes it painful, but it highlights the reality of the love of God. The lopsidedness of the love story is really what makes it so powerful and amazing even. You know, we as Christians are used to talking about the love of God. I hope you hear that from me often, that we talk about those things often. We, we, we should love the love of God. It's a good thing, you know. Verses like, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And whoever believes would not perish but have life. All of this comes from, from the love of God that's good. We want to soak all that up, drink it in. We want frequent mentions, uh, conversations around the, the love of God, and yet we should never let that love become so commonplace in our minds that we forget the wonder of his love, the awe of his love, that, that this is really the jaw-dropping crown jewel of the book is the, is the love of God. It's also the most shocking part. You know, the most shocking part of the book is not the judgments of punishment. 
It's not even the rebellions of the people. The most shocking part of the book is how God would still love them. His love is repeatedly unrequited and yet unrelenting. That is, it's not turned back to him, returned to him, and yet his love continues to not quit. It keeps going. You know, we often talk about about God's love as being unconditional. Hear about this talked about here. God God has unconditional love, and I suppose that's fine to talk about that. That's uh, true enough in many ways, but it's better in the language of the Bible to talk about God's love not just as unconditional, but as inseparable that God's love cannot be separated. That is, nothing would come between God's love and us. That's Paul's point at the end of Romans chapter 8. I won't read it. You can go there if you want. It's life for us. But there's this huge list that Paul gives of things that are just not even able to separate us from the love of God. You know, he goes on and on about it. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Death? No. Life? No. Can angels separate us? No. Can demons? No. Can things present separate us? No. Can things to come separate us from the love of God? No. Nothing, he says, can separate us from the love of God. And yet, as we look at Hosea, there's this whoredom in her. Can that Can that separate us from the love of God? I think the answer by the end is no. No, it can't. It's the nature of sin to separate us from God, to separate us from each other. And yet, what Jesus did on the cross was to remove the power of sin to separate us, to come between us and God. So on the cross, the love of God really gets the last word. It really conquers and has victory over us so that nothing, nothing, listen, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus. Not just do you agree. Do you believe that the love of Jesus is greater than all of your sin? Whatever your worst red boots are that are still in your closet, that his love would be greater than that? and that nothing would be able to separate you from his love? If we are skilled in wisdom, or even if you're not, like me, and learning and growing these things, but want to grow in wisdom, if we're skilled in wisdom as the end asks us, we can at least see one thing that the book of Hosea is not. Hosea might be a horror and a tragedy and a love story, but it's not a self-help book. 
Hosea is not a self-help book. It is meant to change us, yes. It is meant to make us walk upright, yes. It is meant to draw us to put away our whorings, yes. But it is not meant to make us do that ourselves. We're not able to. Instead, wisdom here at the end would cause us to ponder, to to reflect with wisdom upon its deep truths so that we understand and know and really believe them, which are, uh, the truths are these, that though, though your sin is a horror, though your circumstances are tragic, your God loves you to the very end. Let that guide you in the ways of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Mm, Lord, would you make us wise by your spirit to see these things? That as we reflect upon ourselves, we would see and be horrified at our own sin, and yet that we would not miss the glory of your love to us in Jesus. Help us to find life in these things, to find strength through our faith in these things, so that we would follow you gladly and praise you fully. You are worth praising. Thank you, thank you for your love to us. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.